book of Nehemiah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of the Lord. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked him concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you have commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your, the, your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Speak to God. The Lord be with you. Lord bless you. Thank you. Happy New Year to everyone. Today we begin a new sermon series on the book of Nehemiah. Some traditions treat Ezra and Nehemiah as a single book, as both books describe the same period of time and overlap in some events. And so along with the sermon series on Nehemiah, we will study the book of Ezra uh, in our FGs. If you're not in an FG right now, I want to strongly encourage you to join one this year. Start the new year with a renewed commitment to studying God's word with God's people. Now, please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for this day, for this new year. And we are mindful once again of the uncertainty and the brevity of life. And we ask that in humility, we might seek your face and do what is right before you. Speak your word to us. And in the hearing, help us to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let me begin with a little historical background. In the year 586 BCE, the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar defeated the southern kingdom of Judah, or what was left of Israel, 
and laid the city of Jerusalem in ruins and took many of its inhabitants into exile. According to 2 Kings 24, Nebuchadnezzar carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. This was essentially the end of the ancient kingdom of Israel. So those living in exile, far from the land of their forefathers, surrounded by foreign gods, foreign peoples, and foreign ideas, the people of Israel must have wondered about God's promises, such as those found in Jeremiah 29. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, for shalom, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. It's only natural that in extraordinary circumstances, such as exile, war, or pandemic, new questions get asked and faith and faith commitments get re-examined. The Israelites in captivity must have wondered, how much longer will we be stuck in this situation? Will we ever get out of this place? Has God abandoned us forever? Do God's promises still hold? When, if ever, will God reestablish and restore to us a kingdom like the glorious days of King David? Then, in the year 539 BCE, the Medes and the Persians, led by Cyrus the Great, defeated the Babylonians, and as the new world power decreed a new policy of allowing the Israelites and others in exile to return to their homelands. So God's promises were unexpectedly fulfilled, and the people of Israel were able to return to Jerusalem and to begin the process of rebuilding their world. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell that story of returning and rebuilding twin themes, which I thought would resonate with us. Now, as you can see in this chart, they will return and rebuild in three successive waves over a period of many decades. The first wave will be led by Zerubbabel, and he will lead the efforts to rebuild the temple, the house of worship. As the people of God, they prioritize the rebuilding of the temple and worship. Then the second wave, nearly six decades later, will be led by Ezra, and he will help to rebuild the temple under the Torah and the teaching of God's word. And the third and final wave, a dozen years later, will be led by Nehemiah, and he will rebuild the protective wall around Jerusalem. As you can see, and as you know in your own life, rebuilding and restoration takes a long time. The events recorded in Nehemiah are also the last pieces of history in the Old Testament. After this, 
there will be 400 years of silence before God speaks once again to an elderly couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth in preparation for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, as the book of Nehemiah opens, he is in Susa, the capital of Persia, and as they used to say, he is gainfully employed in the bureaucratic machinery of the empire. It's the year 445 BCE. That means he's almost as far removed from the Babylonian conquest that brought his ancestors to Susa as you and I are removed from the American Civil War. Yet even though he is separated from Jerusalem by a century and a half of time, and by 800 miles of sand, he has not forgotten his homeland, nor the God of his ancestors. Credit here must be given to his parents and to his faith community for keeping his faith alive in exile. It is another reminder to us that faith can be nurtured and thrive under all circumstances. So when his brother and a group of men from Judah appear and come to town, Nehemiah takes the initiative to find out more about the welfare of those who had returned and about the city itself. And they tell him, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The welfare of the people is tightly bound up with the condition of the walls. It's like hearing that a city has no money, no infrastructure, that potholes and vacant lots are multiplying, that warehouses are abandoned, that graffiti and broken glass characterize the streets. Not too long ago, I was driving through the city of Niagara Falls, and I noticed that many of the traffic lights had been turned off and had been replaced by stop signs. I thought that maybe this was because there wasn't as much traffic, but I learned later that it was because the city could not afford to keep the traffic lights on. That is a bad sign. That is a city whose walls are broken down. When you hear that, you know that it's not just the city. It's the people who are living in that area who are not safe, who are suffering. Nehemiah is paying for the city and its people. Even though the temple had been rebuilt, even though the people were starting to rediscover the word of God, it was clear to Nehemiah that the city and its people remained vulnerable and that the vision of restoration as promised in Jeremiah and elsewhere in the scriptures was far from being completed. Just as Jesus will weep over the city of Jerusalem, when Nehemiah hears the news, he also sat down and wept and mourned for days. And he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You might remember that over the summer, I gave a sermon on this passage about Nehemiah's response to tragedy. And I was so encouraged to hear that many of you were moved to respond in this way of sitting down and weeping and fasting and praying as you thought about the multiple crises facing this nation. In that sermon, I also mentioned that the rest of the chapter of Nehemiah 1 is Nehemiah's prayer and that he models the Acts prayer, A-C-T 
S. That he begins with adoration, followed by confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. It's a way of organizing your thoughts in prayer. It's not the only one. In fact, this is just the first of about a dozen prayers that Nehemiah will pray throughout. You will see in the coming weeks that he's constantly praying. And this is just the beginning of four months of prayer regarding the news that he has just heard. If nothing else, I hope his prayer life will encourage you to join in our weekly night, weekly Wednesday night prayer meetings. Maybe you can't come every week, but come more than you came last year, even if it's just once. Make it a priority to pray more with the people of God and with this church this year. Now, rather than going over the form and the structure of the prayer again, I want you to notice something else about this prayer. More than anything else, this prayer of Nehemiah indicates his deep knowledge of God. His prayer is saturated with the words and with the phrases found throughout the scriptures. This is how he knows God. How do we know God? How do we know anyone? You know someone by what they say and by what they do. And Nehemiah knows what God has said and what God has done according to the scriptures. And it is that knowledge of God that forms the basis of his prayers. For example, here are just a few things that Nehemiah knows about God. One, God is the God of heaven. Four times he will acknowledge God is the God of heaven. God is above. God dwells in realms beyond our understanding. He is a great and awesome God whose power is absolute. Second, God is trustworthy. God is reliable and loyal to himself and to us. God keeps his covenantal promises. Third, God is merciful. He promises that no matter how unfaithful his people have been, if they would only repent and return, he will restore and receive them. Nehemiah knows that the God who scatters is also the God who is waiting to gather. And fourth, God is one who is near and personal. God is the God of heaven, but God is the God who is also close to us. He's intimate with us. He speaks to us. God can be known. God is present in our lives and makes his will known to us personally. Nehemiah certainly doesn't know everything about God, but he knows God well enough. And what's crucial about this knowledge of God is that it leads Nehemiah to recognize his proper position before God. This is his motivation for prayer and his confidence in prayer. He knows God, and therefore he knows his position before God. We are many things before God. We are like sheep. We are like children. We are his people. But we are also his servants. Eight times in this prayer, the word servant pops up. Nehemiah 
recognizes he is a servant of God, that the people of God are servants of God, that Moses is a servant of God. Nehemiah knows who God is, and he knows that he himself is a servant of God. This really is the foundation of our theology and of our thinking about God. John Calvin's masterwork, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, opens with this sentence. Nearly all the wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. We start with the true knowledge of God, which leads us to the true knowledge of ourselves. Nehemiah knows who he is because he knows who God is. He understands that regardless of his work or of his career, he is first and foremost a servant of God. Remember, Nehemiah is not a priest. He is not a scribe. He's not a religious leader. He's not a servant of God in that sense. He's a federal employee who spends most of his time drinking wine. But he is a man of faith and he knows he's a servant of God. Like many of you, he's what we would call a lay leader. And he finds himself in a situation not unlike the one faced by Queen Esther. And Mordecai's words to her could just as easily be given to Nehemiah. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, if you do nothing, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And maybe you and we as a church have come to our position in this kingdom for such a time as this. So here's a question I'd like for you to consider this new year. As servants of the all-powerful, trustworthy, merciful God, the God of heaven who is also near you and in your hearts, what is the work, the ministry to which God is calling you. How will you personally and how we, how will we as a church serve God this year? Can I encourage you like Nehemiah to take the initiative to ask questions about the condition of the world? It may be that the answer you receive will stir some deep empathy in you. The needs of the world are endless. And I know that for some of you, you will be moved by many, many things. But you cannot respond to all of it. But you must respond to some of it. Or maybe to just one. As you've heard me say many times over the years, you can't do everything, but you can do something. So in prayer and fasting, ask yourself, what really moves you? What do you really care about outside of yourself and your immediate family? In Matthew 9, 
we are told that when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he told his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What moves you to deep compassion? Where do you see people harassed and helpless? That may be your call to ministry. Again, I'm not talking about ministry for ministers. Nehemiah didn't go to seminary. He didn't become a minister. I'm talking about all of you in your school, in your jobs, right where you are. God is calling you to minister to others. It's true that you are created to be loved, but you are also created and saved for good works. As the people of God, rebuilding the temple, restoring worship was first and vital, but it doesn't end there. The restoration of shalom for the people of God requires more than the restoration of worship. And like Nehemiah in Susa, like Joseph and Moses in Egypt, like Esther in Persia, like each of you in your various cities, you are in a position of incredible privilege while the people around you may be suffering. And God is giving you a new year and a new opportunity to serve him and to rebuild his kingdom. And God is calling us to pray earnestly for more workers. I know that some people treat faith as a way to be blessed or to feel comfortable. Some people treat faith like an insurance policy against bad things happening to them. That's not faith. That's just wishful thinking and superstition. I remind you that our faith means that we are the servants of God. Remember the promises that you made in your baptism and the promises that you made in becoming a member of this church. We are a servant people. Let me close with this. I've titled the sermon series, Remember Me, Oh My God, for Good. This comes from the last sentence of the book. The book of Nehemiah is a unique genre in the Bible in that it is written largely as a first-person narrative, or in modern terms, as a memoir. It's Nehemiah retelling of what he did and how he experienced God's call and what happened as a result of him answering that call. If he were to publish his memoirs today, he might title it, Remember Me. That's what he wants. He wants God to remember him for good. That's a good prayer. It's written for us, but it's also written for God. He wants God to remember him. He wants his life to matter for God. In thinking about memoirs, I was reminded that five years ago, 
I asked you to write a six-word memoir. The inspiration for six-word memoirs came courtesy of a legend about Ernest Hemingway. As the story goes, Hemingway was once challenged to tell a story in six words, and he came up with this, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Perhaps you remember writing a six-word memoir in response to that five years ago. Perhaps you remember some of these. God's plans are greater than mine. The Lord has watched over me. I'm glad God is in control. Lost hope. God found me anyway. Trying to be a better man. Christ in me, brokenness at bay. Miss my parents. Hold on to family. Desire too much. Afraid to hope. Cannot write it in six words. More than I thought was possible. Table for five, blessed beyond words. I wonder in light of this past year and in light of the beginnings of this new year, what you might write today. How will you remember what God has called you to do this year? What is it that you are hoping for in the new year? Do you know that God is calling you to more than just surviving this year, to more than just taking care of yourself? It might be something as enormous as rebuilding a wall, or it might be something very small yet significant, such as repairing a broken relationship. But God is calling you to rebuild and to restore, to alleviate some of the deepest miseries of the world. And you are uniquely positioned and uniquely empowered for that work. You are a servant of the God Most High. So let me encourage you to start writing the story of your life as a memoir, as a servant of God. That's a story that we all want to hear. Ask questions, be moved, pray, and write down what God is teaching you, where God is leading you, and what God is calling you to do. Discover for yourself once again that God is the powerful, awesome God of heaven, the merciful and forgiving God, the one who never breaks a promise, and the one who is ever near and speaks to you personally. Know God and know yourself. Then maybe at the end of the year, as you look back, you can share your story with the congregation and inspire us with the testimony of rebuilding, of restoration, of renewal, or perhaps with just a seven-word memoir like Nehemiah. Remember me, oh my God for good. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this new year. Help us this year to listen to the news of the world around us, to ask questions. Move us 
in our commitment to prayer. And make clear to us the work that you have set aside for us. Help us to know you so that we might be motivated and have the confidence to know that this is a task to which we have been called. And help us this year to write out our story as the servants of God, to have a story to tell as your servants. Remember us, oh my God, for good. We pray now together.